Um, welcome, especially if you're new here or visiting and you came on this day. Wow, how exciting is that? I know we have one couple that came all the way from Erie to be with us this morning. Pennsylvania, Drew and Carrie Gimple, good to have you guys. Awesome seeing you guys. If we could, well, I won't, that's just for, yeah, if we could get them to hang around another week. Drew, and you can come hang out at my house and do some stuff. Um, that would be awesome. Um, wasn't the snow great? I don't like driving in it, but for some of us old timers, doesn't that remind you of what Thanksgiving used to be like? There was always snow on the ground, I felt like Thanksgiving. We'd eat, watch a football game of that team that I didn't care for down in Texas. Sorry if you're, I have a Cowboy, there's a Cowboys fan here, I know there's a few. Um, and then we'd go outside and play football in snow for like two hours and come in frozen solid, sit on the heaters, heating vents on the floor, have hot chocolate. That's some of my greatest memories. Um, it's my favorite holiday to Sarah. So, okay. Um, and thanks to everybody who helped and chipped in this morning, people who still came in, who still worked, who still greeted, um, who still came in and did the worship, the tech guys, I'm going to leave some people out, the guys who came in and plowed snow while everybody else was still asleep, or maybe not, but dug out of their own house, came in and helped get snow, you know, finish the snow off. I appreciate um, everybody that did that. Kind of a lot of them are kind of over here. This is the snow plowing section, but um, appreciate you guys doing that. So, all right, we're in the book of Nehemiah, continuing that series. And if you remember, we're in the last major section of the book where it's shifted from the building of the wall to the community and them creating a healthy, restoring community. And there's that emphasis that if we're going to be restorers where we live, work, study, play outside these four walls, we need a healthy community here. We've got to have that healthy support base, right? That base camp. So far in chapters 8, 9, and 10, we've learned about the essential practices of their community, those foundational practices of the Word of God, of celebration, prayer, remembering. Last week was soul oneness and marriage, faithfulness and Sabbath keeping, and generosity and giving. And this morning, we're going to see the two final of the foundational practices. We're kind of wrapping up the section in Nehemiah where it talks about the community. And next week we'll be in chapter 13, which is a, an interesting chapter. So read it ahead of time and we'll see what I can do with some of the things in that chapter. Um, but last week we were in chapter 10. This morning we won't be looking at chapter 11. It's essentially a list of the people who cast lots to decide who would live in the city of Jerusalem now that the wall was completed. But I will read the first two verses. So if you'll turn, if you've got this numbered, to page 56. If you don't, it just says 11-1 in the upper left-hand corner. We're past the halfway mark. Um, I just want to read the first two verses of chapter 11. It says, Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their towns. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. And I'm going to stop there. So the rest of the chapter is a list of the people, a long list, who won the lottery to live in Jerusalem, okay? And I will let you um, self-edify yourself by reading the rest of that chapter on your own later today, okay? So chapter 11 really is about the city being repopulated. And then we come to Nehemiah chapter 12. So if you will flip the page to Nehemiah 12, page 58. Um, and this is a chapter of those last essential practices of a healthy, restoring community. 
The first 21 verses of chapter 12 simply is a list of the leaders of the priests and the Levites who had been part of the very first return under Zerubbabel that had happened 538 B.C., 94 years before these people were here, okay? So they're recounting those people who returned with him. I'm not going to be reading that for you this morning. I also leave that to your leisure this afternoon as you cuddle up in front of your fireplace with a hot cup of hot chocolate and a football game probably. When you get to verse 22, you come to an accounting of the leaders of the Levites in Nehemiah's day. And I do want to start reading there. So verse 22, the family heads of the Levites in the days of Eliashim, um, Joiada, Johanan, and Jadua, as well as those of the priests, were recorded in the reign of Darius the Persian. The family heads among the descendants of Levi up to the time of Johanan, son of Eliashib, were recorded in the book of the Annals. And the leaders of the Levites were... Hashabiah, Sherebiah, Jeshua, son of Kadmiel, and their associates who stood opposite them to give praise and thanksgiving, one section responding to the other as prescribed by David, the man of God. Verse 25, Matani, Bakbukia, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talman, and Akub were gatekeepers who guarded the storerooms at the gates. They served in the days of Joachim, son of Joshua, the son of Josadak, and in the days of Nehemiah the governor, why don't you underline Nehemiah the governor, in the days of Nehemiah the governor, and of Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law. Just go ahead and underline that, because as we've learned, those are the two central figures in their history at this time. Nehemiah, the wall builder, governor, Ezra, the priest, and the, the teacher of the word. So with things starting, they're coming back to normal in life there, the city's getting resettled, and they decide that it's time to dedicate the wall. And that's really what the rest of this chapter is, is, involves. It's their kind of ribbon-cutting ceremony. And in this dedication, what they're doing is they're consecrating the wall to the Lord. They are saying, visually, by what we're going to see them doing, this wall belongs to you, it's yours, and we're consecrating it to you to use for your purposes, and we want this wall to be to your fame. So that's what's happening with the dedication. So verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving, with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians were also brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal, and from the area of Geba and Asmaveth, for the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. Um, that kind of happens in New York, right? Artists and musicians tend to cluster in certain neighborhoods, so that's kind of what they were doing. Verse 30, when the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates of the, and the wall. So they're bringing all the musicians together, the musical instruments, they purify themselves, they purify the wall, they purify the gates. And once they've done this ritual purification, they're going to divide all the people into two groups, and they're going to do a celebration up on top of the wall. So verse 31. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate. Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah followed them along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some priests with trumpets, and also Zechariah, son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Metaniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zakur, the son of Asaph, 
and his associates, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Ma'ai, Nathanael, Judah, and Hanani, with the music, musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. I need to take a breath after that. Ezra, the teacher of the law, led the procession. At the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed above the side of David's palace to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall, together with half the people, past the tower of ovens to the broad wall, over the gate of Ephraim and the Jeshanah gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, the tower of hundred, as far as the sheep gate, at the gate of the guard, they stopped. Nice to read gates and towers instead of names. Um, a lot easier. Most commentators believe that this procession around the wall started at the valley gate on the west side of the city. That's where they started. It's the very same place where Nehemiah started. Remember at night when he went and inspected the wall? It's the same place where he started. Nehemiah and his group headed north going clockwise, and Ezra and his group headed south going counterclockwise. Um, I find it interesting. Ezra led his group around the wall. Nehemiah followed at the back of his group. To me, it's just another one of those subtle signs of his servant leadership. And so setting off in opposite directions, the groups march around the wall and praise to God until they come together, and then they go um, up to meet up at the temple. What's interesting is the people have grown accustomed to seeing workers on the walls and seeing watchmen on the walls, but this is the first time they see worshipers on the wall. Kind of cool. Um, I'm sure it was quite a sight. So why this dedication service? Why this desire to do this and specifically to get up on top of the walls and march around the walls to the temple? Um, why didn't they just meet up there? Warren Wearsby, in his commentary, suggests three reasons that I found good enough to share with you guys. Um, first, since it was the walls that were being dedicated and celebrated, it was, only the right, it was right for the people to get up on them and touch them, right? That's what they'd been doing for all these days. And, you know, God knows that we need physical things. We're embodied spirits. We're embodied souls. And we need physical things on our worship. That's why we do communion with bread, bread and the juice, the bread and the wine. That's why we do baptism. We do these physical things because we're embodied and we need those things. Second reason to march on top of the wall was to bear witness to the great work of God that he had done through them on the wall. Um, to lift him up and exalt his name. Do you remember in Nehemiah 4, 3? Tobiah had said, these walls are so weak that if a fox jumped up on top of them, they would crumble. Do you remember that? And so for all the people to get up on top of the wall and march around, what it shows is, is God has done a great work. These are strong walls, and we want to give him the glory for everything that's happened. It's a visible demonstration of the power of God. And third, by marching on the walls, the people had a chance to see the fruit of their hard work. Can you imagine as you're marching up on top of the wall and you come to a section that you repaired, you're like, this is the work that I did right here. And I think the people who especially enjoyed that were the perfume makers and the priests, the religious dudes, right? And as they came on their part, like the, the perfume makers or the priests would say, hey, check this out. Not bad for a priest, huh? Not bad for a religious dude who doesn't know what to do with his hands. Um, Drew, I'm sure your part of the wall would be awesome. Mine would be pretty crumbly and not that great. But it's a chance for them to, to, I think, to experience what they just did. But the most important thing about this service wasn't the march and the wall. It was really their expression of joyful praise to the Lord. That's the, the key of this, which we're going to get to in a minute. So verse 40. 
The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests Eliakim, Maaseah, Min-Amin, Micaiah, Elinoi, Nai, sorry, I blew that one, Zechariah, Hananiah with their trumpets, and also Maaseah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, Jehonan, Jehohanan, Malkijah, Elam, and Ezer, the crowd sang under the direction of Jezreiah. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices. I love this verse. On that day, they offered great sacrifices. That word great occurs a lot in Nehemiah, by the way, if you haven't noticed. They offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. I mean, don't you love that detail? Like, it was raucous. Um, have you ever lived close to a football stadium or you're going to a game? I mean, I, I live, I don't know how many blocks away. If the stadium, maybe 10 blocks, I'm not sure. But if you go out on a day when ESU's playing, you can hear the rise of the crowd, right, as a touchdown's being scored. In fact, yesterday I went out to shovel snow um, to get a start on it, and I heard a, a, the, the crescendo of a crowd yelling, and I'm like, ESU had their final game. What is that? And then I remembered it was the state championship game, and I went and checked, and it was the 6A, if I remember right. But from our house, I could hear the crescendo, and that's what happened here. Verse 44. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first, first fruits and tithes, that's two words we saw last week, from the fields around the towns they were to bring into the storerooms, the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites, for Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did also the musicians and gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, and by the way, for them, that was 500 years before. That would be, I like us, remembering something from the time of Christopher Columbus, okay? So for long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the musicians or for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the musicians and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. And this is the word of the Lord. We say amen to that, to the reading of his word. Okay, the first essential of the two I see in this chapter is worship. On this day at the consecration of the walls, the people were worshiping and praising the Lord. And there's a lot of words related to worship in this chapter. The word praise occurs two times, and I'd like to circle those. We're not going to circle all these, but those two stood out to me. The first one is in verse 27. If you look in verse 27, um, actually not 27, I think it's 24. If you look in verse 24, towards the right-hand side, almost to the bottom, you see give praise, so circle that. And then if you flip over a page two pages to verse 46, you will see it again at the end of the verse, talks about on the left-hand side of praise, songs of praise, so circle that word praise. In this chapter, the word musician occurs five times, five times, the word song or sang four times, the word choir four times in English, though it only occurs once in Hebrew, and I'm going to show you that in a minute, and the Hebrew word actually Choir is not what it is. It just refers to people singing, singers. The general phrase musical instruments is mentioned once. 
three different, I think four different musical instruments are actually mentioned. The harp, the trumpet, two times. Any trumpet players in here? Anybody play trumpet? Andrew, trumpet player back here. The harp, do I have a harp player? Going once, going twice. The lyre, anybody play the lyre? Cymbals, one time. I'm a cymbal player, Evan, Eric, Mel. Um, I will tell you in Hebrew, the word shaker is mentioned once, tambourine once, goat hoof shakers once, and eggs are mentioned several times. So um, that's just a joke. That's just being funny, okay? I had to throw that in as a percussionist. But here's the point of this first one, is that the worship of God should be our number one priority. It should be our number one priority. It is truly the duty of every human being. All through Scripture, we are commanded to worship God and to praise Him. The Psalms, the church's prayer book is full of cries for us to praise God. 130 times it's mentioned in the book of Psalms. And that's why the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is the chief end of man, of men and women, of mankind is, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Our English word worship comes from the old English word worship. It wasn't spelled with a dash. I just did that so you could see what's in there. The word literally meant to give God the honor that His worth deserved. So worship is to acknowledge His full worthiness in reverent joy and grateful praise. So to worship the Lord is to proclaim or to ascribe to Him His great worth. That's what it is. In Psalm 29.2, it says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness, which is what we see happening in this chapter. And that's what we see happening in Revelation chapter 4, that great, great scene in heaven where it says that the 24 elders fell down before Him who sits on the throne, and they worshiped Him who lives forever and ever, saying, You are worthy our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. So you see, they're giving Him the worth that is due His name. That's what worship is. One of my favorite definitions of worship comes from Warren Wiersbe, who says, worship is the response of all that we are to all that God is. In other words, worship affects all of life, all of life, and Britt and I have talked about this a lot, the worship team, we've talked about this, that it's so easy to think of worship only as singing, right? And, and we're, we wanna, we've all talked about how we want to correct that, that assumption, and that worship is in our giving, it's in our serving each other. I could show you text in Scripture that calls serving others as worship, um, giving. Um, Romans 12 talks about laying my life down and surrender to Him as a form of worship, so worship involves my whole life. It's not just worship and song, but worship and song is what this chapter is about, right? Their voices accompanied by musical instruments joyfully celebrating God, who He is and what He's done. And we are commanded to worship Him in song, both corporately and privately. Both are important. You can see both in Psalm 34, 1 to 3. Where David says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. And then in verse 3, he says, glorify the Lord together with me. With me, let us exalt his name together. So that private, the corporate. Psalm 149.1 speaks of the corporate. 
singing. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of his faithful people. And that's why this corporate gathering is so important. And that's why the worship, the singing we did, the worship we did in song is so important. Because we're commanded to gather and to do that and to be obedient to that. Um, and I know something I know I need on a weekly basis. We just talked about that in our membership class. What are one of the important reasons we gather as a whole community? And when we talked about it, that was one of the things that came up. Do you guys remember when we first came back from COVID and we were gathering? And as people trickled in those first several weeks or over time, how many people told me that their first time back, they were like weeping because to be back with the people of God worshiping together. And Psalm 42.8 speaks of the private worship. Each day the Lord pours out His unfailing love upon me, and through each night I sing His songs. I sing His songs. I think we know how to worship corporately for the most part. I mean, we're here and we do it. Um, what about privately? I was thinking about that because some people maybe don't feel like they have a musical gift or whatever. But to me, it's listening to KJIL or K-Love instead of sports radio, which is tempting to do that when I'm driving that I have that on so my heart can be attuned to him through worship, sometimes singing with the songs, um, just singing privately in the shower. I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one who does that, right? The water's on, it's not very, your, your, your voice hopefully is covered up, I've never asked Pat. Um, as part of your quiet time, I know people who do that, singing as you drive, singing as you do your outdoor work. We sang the goodness of God. I sang the goodness of God while I rake leaves Friday, frantically, to get all of them up before the snow, and I was successful. Um, and I think singing as a family, which may a little bit seem weird to a lot of families, but let me tell you, Advent season's a great time to start that. Do something Advent every night with the Advent wreath and sing a Christmas carol every night, and it's a way that you can sing um, as a family. So, in both corporate worship Corporate and private, worship is part of a healthy community. And then the final essential of a healthy community that we see in chapter 12 is gratitude or thanksgiving. We know because it's the most repeated word in the chapter, actually. It occurs in the chapter six times in English, in Hebrew, seven times. Something significant I'm going to show you in a minute. I want to circle those because we've circled praise, the two occurrences. Let's circle these. You'll find the first one in verse 8. The word thanksgiving is found there at the very end on the left edge of the page. Circle that. You find it again down in verse 24. Again, the word thanksgiving, again on the left edge of the page. Circle thanksgiving there. If you flip the page, it occurs in verse 27. Three lines down, right in the middle. Songs of thanksgiving, circle thanksgiving there. If you'll drop down to verse 31, second line on the left-hand side, it talks about large choirs to give thanks. Circle give thanks there. Verse 40, um, that first line, you see give, gave thanks. So circle gave thanks there. And then if you flip the page, in verse 20, 46, at the very end of the verse, thanksgiving to God. So circle thanksgiving there. And as you can see, as Derek Kidner says, this chapter is an extended thanksgiving. It's an extended thanksgiving. And how appropriate that this chapter comes up this week, the week we're celebrating Thanksgiving. Last night when I thought, we may not meet today, I was so disappointed because I'm like, this passage fits so well the weekend. 
So I'm glad some of us are able to gather. I'm thankful for those that are online um, who are gathering that way uh, in their pajamas, drinking their hot chocolate during the service. But we're thankful that we can still gather. Um, And this Thanksgiving celebration that Sarah mentioned that I love so much, that's baked into our history's culture, that I love that reality so much. I want to tell you something else, though, I want you to write down. Thanksgiving is also found in chapter 11. So I want you underneath verse 47 in that space, I want you to write Numbers, I mean, Nehemiah, sorry, Nehemiah 11, 17. Write Nehemiah 11, 17. And then turn back in your booklet to chapter 11, back, like three pages back. And if you'll look at Nehemiah 11, verse 17, second line, the word Thanksgiving occurs there. So circle it there. It says, Mataniah, son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, the director who led in thanksgiving and prayer. So thanksgiving is, like I said, the most repeated word, and I think the core theme, the praise and worship, and thanksgiving in particular. Closely related thanksgiving is joy and rejoicing, right? That's just a no-brainer. They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Um, We learn that from from um, Madam Blueberry, which in my opinion is the best veggie tale, right? We learn from her that a thankful heart is a happy heart. A thankful heart is a happy heart. And she says, that's why I say thanks every day. That's why the for- a form of the word rejoice or joy is found five times in this chapter in verse 27, especially in verse 23, 43. And the word celebrate occurs one time in verse 27. So we see this idea of celebration and joy and rejoicing because that's tied to thanksgiving. Now, I'm going to do something, show you something pretty interesting. A minute ago, I said the word thanksgiving occurs seven times in the Hebrew text, though it's only six times in the English. It's actually very insightful. And so here's what's going on if you read this in Hebrew. The Hebrew word for the noun thanksgiving is tadot. Can you say tadot with me? Tadot. Okay. Now, with that in our pocket, look at verse 31. It says, I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. That whole large choir to give thanks is actually, in Hebrew, I assigned two large tadots. Or I assign two large thanksgivings, and that's a noun, two large thanksgivings. Now drop down to verse 38. In English, it reads, the second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. Again, it's the second to dote. It doesn't say choir, it says to dote, um, so, or the second thanksgiving. Above the word choir there in that verse, write the word thanksgiving in verse 38. Um, Because the other two uses of choir that have this have thanksgiving built into the English, but this one doesn't. So write thanksgiving above that word choir. And then drop down to verse 40. In English, it reads, the two choirs that gave thanks then took their place in the house of God. In Hebrew, it's the two tadots took their places. The two thanksgivings took their places. And here's why this is significant. Um, Derek Kidner does a good job with this. He says that it means that these two groups... They were the embodiment of what they sang. They were the embodiment of what they sang. One Thanksgiving went to the right, the other Thanksgiving to the left, and eventually both Thanksgiving stood in the house of God. So they embodied Thanksgiving. Isn't that cool? And we are to embody Thanksgiving. We're to be the same way as God's people. And that means that my primary perspective in regards to God, in regards to life, in regards to the things around me going on, the people that God has brought in my life, that it is to be one of gratitude and joy and rejoicing. We are to embody this just like they did. There are many among us who do this, who embody thanksgiving 
and joy and rejoicing. Gratitude. We see it ooze out of them. It's in their blood, right? But we're human, and we're a different mix of people. And so we also know there's some among us who take the opposite approach to life. Rather than being thankful, than joy and rejoicing oozing and flowing out of them, they're known more for a complaining, grumbling spirit. Rather than embodying gratitude, some of us embody grumbling. Rather than embodying contentment, some of us embody complaining. Seeing the negative in most everything, the glass is always half empty, right? Always noticing what's wrong with every situation, with every person. Always noticing what's wrong with others or other things. Frequently unhappy, discontent, disappointed, and dissatisfied with life, with what God's doing in my life, with people around me. Now, this chapter shows us that worship and thanksgiving belong together, right? You cannot have one without the other. So I think one of the key ways I can determine if my life is a life of worship is asking the question, is my life and my attitude defined by gratitude or grumbling? Because I cannot have a lifestyle of worship if my bent is towards grumbling, if that's what, if that's what I embody and that's what flows out of me. Does that make sense? Because they're so tied together. So at this point, I want to do something unique. I want to hearken back to the sermon I did last May when we studied the names of God. In Exodus 15, we looked at when God revealed himself as Yahweh Rapha, I am your healer. And when we did that, there was something that I left on the table, something in the text really significant that I gave about two minutes to, but that wasn't my main point that weekend. But I took that thing and stashed it away, and I thought, this needs to be shared at Thanksgiving, not even knowing that at Thanksgiving, we'd be running into Nehemiah 12, where Thanksgiving was the theme. So it's a perfect time to do this. If you remember, the Jewish people had just experienced 10 colossal miracles of God to set them free from their bondage to Pharaoh, right? That obstinate man to finally have him set them free. Then they experienced that huge, colossal, amazing miracle of the Red Sea being parted to finally and fully deliver them from the Egyptians and their bondage. And right after that, they sang a song of praise and worship to God. And then if you remember, three days later, they come upon their first water source, which was called Mara. Do you remember that? And Mara, the meaning of it in Hebrew is bitter. It was undrinkable. And we are told in the text that God put them to a test there. Remember we talked about that? And I talked that day about there's two kinds of tests, summative and formative, and that God gives us formative tests. And the formative tests are, do three things. They form me, who I am, they prepare me for the future, and they do that by, I've got it last because that's what I'm going to focus on, they do that by first revealing something to me so they can perform me and prepare me for the future. All right, so here's the question that I briefly mentioned that day that I think is significant and that relates to Thanksgiving. What was God revealing to them, themselves, their hearts at Mara? What was He revealing? And it wasn't simply their lack of trust in Him, which that was true, but it was something that was much worse. As they came to that water, I don't know, do you remember their response? Was it a response of trust in Him? Not at all. Their response, if you remember, the, the key word was they did what they did all the time on their whole journey they grumbled and they complained. 
That's what they did. That was their response. And in doing so, what they revealed is, is they had a grumbling, complaining spirit. That's what they revealed. They had a heart of grumbling and complaining, the antithesis of a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving. But there's more in that text because the water of Mara was actually an object lesson for them that day. That's why that word bitter occurs three times in that text. It's the most important word in that text, that story. And here's what I want you to know that I couldn't say very much in May, that the bitterness of the water mirrored the bitterness of their hearts, okay? As they looked into the poisonous pool, they saw a reflection of their own embittered heart. They were seeing themselves in that. And that is what God was trying to show them and reveal to them in that story. As Brooke Wilkerson says in his chapter on this story, this, it was an illustrated sermon for them that day. They wanted healed water, but do you know what God wanted? He wanted healed people. That's what he wanted. That's why he took them there. And here, this is all very, very significant because the story actually does something significant in Scripture. It correlates grumbling and complaining with bitterness. It correlates them. And it helps us to realize that God is essentially saying that in your complaining and grumbling spirit, if I were to lift the hood under, on that, what I would find underneath is actually bitterness, is what's underneath of that. A root of bitterness in the, the words from the book of Hebrews. So God led them to the waters of bitterness because he knew that a spirit of bitterness had infected their hearts. That's why he took them there. And that that bitterness needed to be healed. That's what he was after that way that day. That's why his name, Yahweh Rapha, isn't I am the water's healer. His name is I am your healer because what he was after was their heart. That's what he was after. I've talked about this before, but our disappointments, our complaints come out of our expectations, Right? expectations that we place upon the things around us of the way we think they should go, and expectations we place on the people around us of what we think they should do, and ultimately, expectations as to how we think God should be running our lives, right? And people who grumble a lot and complain a lot, one thing they all have in common is they have usually very high, unrealistic expectations, on the things around them and on the people around them. Expectations that can never be met. So continually disappointed, continue complaining. That was true of these Hebrew people in Exodus 15. We're told in that text they were outwardly angry at Moses, but ultimately they were angry with God, and God will say that to him later. The anger they give to you is actually directed at me, okay? It was ultimately God who was not living up to their expectations. And here's what Wilkerson says when he shifts that to us from that story. I'm going I'm to quote him if you don't mind. For some people, a complaining, grumbling spirit, a bitter spirit is one of their signature sins, a sin they so easily get entangled in. It's baked into their character. Perhaps it was learned at the feet of parents who learn from their parents. For some people, a bitter spirit has its root in a specific bitterness in the past. He goes on, deep down you were disappointed and soon a seed and then a root of bitterness took root in your heart and over time it sprang up and it blossomed. But no matter the bitterness, it is ultimately directed at God, the one who allowed it and who was over that circumstance. That's significant. And that's what God was showing them there. And here's the sad thing about bitterness, a root of bitterness, is it leaves a trail of bitterness 
in my life and in the lives of people around me. It actually leaves a trail. Hebrews 12, 15 says this, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. That word defile in the Greek means to contaminate, contaminate. So here's the warning, a grumbling, complaining spirit and the bitterness that lays underneath of that, it will contaminate you and it will contaminate everyone around you. It will seep out into, out of your heart and life into everything. It will contaminate your family, your friends, your coworkers, everything around you. And as you, I think we all know, bitterness will affect your emotional health. Research has shown it affects your physical health. And whatever touches you becomes infected with your bitter, grumbling, complaining spirit, including your relationship with God. And here's what God was saying to the Hebrews that day. Here's what I think he was saying to them. Stop complaining and grumbling. Let go of your bitterness from unmet expectations of how things ought to be and how I ought to operate in your life. It is undermining your relationship with me. It is undermining your trust in me, and it is ruining you. That's what he was saying that day. I want to heal you of that underlying spirit of bitterness so that you don't have to carry it another day. I long for you to step into the joy and the peace of living a life of trusting me and of having gratitude for the things in your life that I allow. And I think that goes for us today. So I know it does. So if you're here this morning and you struggle with a complaining, grumbling spirit, I want you to know God wants to be your Yahweh Rapha. He wants to heal you of that. He longs to fill you with his joy and to bring the wholeness which a grateful, thankful heart brings. So the question is, will we let him have that work in our heart today, that healing work? I want you to know this is fully possible no matter the circumstances because it's not about circumstances, it's about the attitude of the heart. You remember the circumstances of these people? Do you remember? Can I show you from chapter 9? Here's what they prayed about their life there. God, do not let all this hardship seem twifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come on us. See, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors The land's abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. This was difficult times for them. They were still under the boot of Artaxerxes and the Persian Empire, okay? Life was tough for them. Yet, they were able in chapter 12 to give praise and thanks to God despite that. So the ability to give praise and thanks has nothing to do with my circumstance. It has to do with the attitude of my heart, the attitude of my heart. Do you remember when we talked about Ruth? That was almost a year ago. Do you remember Naomi, whose name, do you remember what Naomi means? Bitterness. And she, changed, she said, change my name to bitterness, Tamara, from, from Naomi. Naomi doesn't mean bitterness, but she said, change it to Tamara, bitterness. And the reason is, if you remember when we looked at that whole book, is this is the circumstance of her life. She looked at her circumstances from her perspective and God from her perspective. And if you remember, she said, God has made my life bitter. It's his fault, Right? And what we learned that day is that Ruth looked at things very differently. Ruth looked at the circumstances from God's perspective, and she saw everything differently, and she saw everything actually correctly. So my challenge is is that for those of us who struggle with a complaining, grumbling spirit, um, 
that we would learn to, like Ruth, to see things more from God's perspective. Um, Two ways I want to recommend that. Number one, whatever in your life disappoints you right now, whatever you're not happy with, you dislike, whatever people you're unhappy with, whatever disappointments you have, write them on a little note card and spend from now till the end of the year every day giving thanks to God for those things, for those people. And see if it doesn't change your attitude. Because if you see those people and things as disappointments, guess what your attitude is going to be to them? Not positive. But if every day you say, I thank you for these people, I thank you for these things in my life, God can change that. And then one last thing. On the way out, if you want to get it. I don't remember who did this. Some lady that Pat likes to read. Van Camp or something. Huh? Voss Camp. A thousand gifts where every day you pray and give thanks to God for three things. This sits in my prayer, little prayer book that I go through every day, and I've been doing this for years since it first came out. It is so helpful in establishing your day in Thanksgiving. So you can grab one of those on the way out. All right, and I'm sure you would be thankful if we would wrap up, and we're going to wrap up. So here are my main questions today. I mean, if you're going to come out on this kind of day, we're going we're gonna to really give it all to you, okay? Uh, Here's some questions to think about. Is your life, turn this to me, is my life a literal embodiment of thanksgiving, of gratitude? Or would I say my life is the embodiment of complaining and grumbling? Does your heart tend to go toward gratefulness or griping? If people heard most of your talk, your self-talk, is it contentment or complaint? Is your inner disposition more like the Hebrews of Exodus 15 or the Hebrews of Nehemiah 12? Your inner disposition. And if you struggle with a heart that struggles with joy and gratitude, here's a prayer for you from David in Psalm 51, 10 to 12. You can even pray right now in the quietness of your heart. Lord, would you create in me a pure heart, O God? Would you create a pure heart? Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit, a willing spirit to give thanks and sustain me. And then a couple of questions about worship. I got these from John Piper. Do you delight more and more in the majesty and glory of God? you think of your life, are you delighting more and more in the majesty and glory of God? And does your heart incline to worship God more consistently and intelligently and earnestly and intensely today than it did five years ago or one year ago? Where are you with worship? All right, we've added two more essentials to a healthy, restoring community, right? We have the Word of God, celebration, prayer, remembering. Soul oneness and marriage, Sabbath keeping, generosity and giving, and now we add worship and gratitude and thankfulness. Nine essentials of a healthy church body. Twelve, can we prayerfully long and ask God to make us this kind of community? Because if we're this kind of community, then we can live well outside of these four walls. And I just want to show you one cool thing as I looked at that list, because I didn't generate it. It came out of Nehemiah. Look at how interrelated they are. That if I will... 
spend time in, in my quiet time in, in the, the Word of God and in prayer, if I live a life of celebration, a life of remembering, which we talked about this morning, a life of worship, that will all lead to a heart of gratitude and thankfulness, which in turn will lead me to have a generous heart. So these things are also interrelated. So, just real quick, most important thing you learned today? Write it down, space in the back of the book as always. We're getting close to the end of those. Three more weeks in Nehemiah. But more importantly, what was God saying to your heart? How was he tapping you on the shoulder? What did you most need to hear in your soul today? Just write a note. And then just make a note. What are you going to do to live into that? To be obedient. Thanks for coming this morning and corporately worshiping with us. Again, thanks to all of you who helped make this happen, who pulled it off this morning. Thanks to the worship team, powerful worship, um, very powerful. So to everybody, tech, just everybody, um, would you stand with me? Can we end with a song? I'll start it and then I'm going to turn myself off, okay? And you'll be thankful for that. An old classic that I think of every year when it comes to this time of year, give thanks. So if you don't know it, just listen. It's easy to pick up. Give thanks. So, Father, thank you for, again, this book that we're going through. Just help us to learn to be a more worshipful people, not just gathering here to worship, but, Lord, may it penetrate more into our private worship for you. May we worship you all through the week. 
in song, but in our whole lives. And Lord, make us a grateful, thankful people. It is so easy. I mean, as Sarah said, a hard thing comes, and I focus on that, and I forget. Just help us to keep our eyes on you and to know, again, that in all things, you're, you are causing all things to work for good to those who love you and are called according to your purposes. So thank you for this day, and thank you for the beautiful snow, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, and here's something you can be thankful for because of this morning. Not a lot of people are Applebee's or El Arito, so you get your own choice of a table, and you'll get served fast. So good seeing you all. Next week will be Nehemiah 13. Praise God. Amen.